Okay, so it's November, there's a chill in the air, the year is almost over, so it's a perfect time to take stock and hold ourselves accountable for this podcast. So back on December 6, 2022, this group here with me today made its predictions for the year in cybersecurity 2023. Now we're back to see how we did. So welcome back to Greg Wedmore, VP of Software Development. Hi, Greg. Hello, Ken. Thanks for having me again. And to Anya D. Parhar, our COO, responsible for our digital operations. Hi, Anya Deep. Hey, Ken. Pleasure to be here. Nice to hear your voice again. And Mark Rucci, um, who is now on in a new role as a strategic info security advisor for the company, bringing us his uh, deep security expertise. Morning, Ken. Nice to be here. Nice to have you here. So before we start, this would be a great time for anyone in the audience to go back and give our 2023 predictions episode a listen. So we'll wait a second for that. And now you're back. Um, so for those of you who didn't go back and listen, let's kick things off with a quick recap. We made a bunch of predictions. We're going to focus in on three. Um, first was that 2023 would be the year that enterprises and governments really start to get serious about post-quantum readiness and start to prepare. Two, we predicted that there were a lot of tech giants just totally under fire last year about how they handled privacy and data protections. There were lawsuits. There were regulations, a lot of discussions on this. Really thought that this would be a, a, a central topic this year in the C-suite. Um, even as so, like even as consumers were saying they want security, consumers were also saying they wanted more convenience. Um, but that this whole idea of how we how we protected privacy would be very central this year. And um, the third one, a little more simple, an organization's security posture would truly become a board level priority. So those are the three predictions. Question is, how did we do? So let's talk about them one by one. Um, you know, first. You know, we know quantum computing's been on the horizon for years. The question was, you know, has IT, have C-suites, have companies started to get truly serious about post-quantum readiness? Um, Greg, let's let's turn this for you. What is your perspective? Um, you know, I know the big thing was the long-awaited release of the NIST draft standards. Was that was that a catalyst this year? How did how did we do? You know, I th I think we hit pretty close to the mark with the prediction last year. Um, predicting again enterprises and governments uh, starting to get serious about post-quantum readiness um, we ended 2022 with um, the release of the white house memorandum and the new crypto guidance from the u.s government the csnsna 2.0 guidance that sort of progress in the regulatory and advisory guidance from some of the big cybersecurity authorities really did pick up over the last year um, we have releases from CISA in the U.S., from CFDIR in Canada, from BSI in Germany, and the NCSC in, in the U.K. So all of these sort of big cybersecurity advisory organizations are releasing fairly technical, fairly prescriptive guidance on um, preparing for post-quantum, you know, inventorying your cryptographic assets, beginning to plan for uh, increasing an organization's ability to manage their cryptographic assets, their keys and secrets and certificates, and ultimately deploying some of the newly available um, quantum safe technologies in their labs and really trying to understand how the impact of a migration post-quantum will affect their applications. And then you talked about the NIST release. That happened in August of 2023, and, and it was a, a big milestone in the, in the quantum safe world. NIST released draft FIP standards for um, three new quantum-safe cryptographic algorithms for um, Kyber, Dilithium, and Sphinx. And the, the 
bounded the feedback period to a fairly short time frame. We are expecting ultimately draft ratified standards likely in the next six months. Um, so when we after that release, we definitely saw cybersecurity vendors kick up their messaging and start talking about their roadmaps around post-quantum. We saw post-quantum conferences in the cybersecurity world last year. Um, and we saw many uh, enterprise organizations starting to begin their journey to quantum safe. Um, so I'd say that progress around the regulatory and advisory guidance really gained momentum over the last year. I think awareness really grew. Um, certainly when I'm talking at industry events or speaking with our customers, um, it's a topic of conversation. It's a topic they're beginning to become aware of and they're starting to plan their strategy. I think the one piece that's probably lagging a little bit, perhaps didn't get quite as far as um, I had thought, is on the budget and project side. Um, we're still seeing a little bit of slowness uh, for organizations really allocating budget and, and kicking off projects at large scale. Um, and I suspect that the release of, of ratified standards and commercial open interoperable quantum safe crypto in, in security infrastructure, which will likely happen next year, will will likely be that next push, that next milestone that, that starts to generate um, real larger scale projects. Yeah, Mark, what do you see in that area? I know, like the last thing Greg mentioned, Greg mentioned was uh, it was on my mind too. You know, like is the investment there? You know, are are people kicking our know, organizations kicking off those projects? Do you have a sense of like, you know, where where that is? Like who who is who is kicking off projects today, and or what sorts of um, organizations are kicking off projects today, and where that's headed? Absolutely, you know, I think it's going to be where you would expect the financial sector and the government sector. So in the financial sector, um, we have received it, it, it's we get a lot of finance. We get a lot of security questionnaire from where some customers we have received are this year where the first questionnaires were received on post quantum uh, readiness. Um, so we're having to respond back where we are. Um, the other and so real quick when when you say questionnaires, this is this is um companies wanting to work with us, for example, absolutely. saying saying, Are you guys post quantum ready? Yep, yep. Where are you in your journey? Which indicates on their side of the house, their security department or their compliance department, um, they didn't come up with those questionnaires out of thin blue air. They came out of they came up with them because they have a risk based program where they're looking at threats to their own operations. Um, the, the second area I would, besides everything that Greg highlighted, um, most CISOs around the globe and a lot of companies are a member of information sharing analysis centers. Um, the financial services ISAC is, as you would expect, it, it serves the financial companies around the globe. They have a PQ working group where they go in the great detail that was just published um, this year where for their member organizations, they actually talk about how to do the risk assessments, how they should look about, you know, prioritizing their future. So I think I think we're moving along. Where we are from a budgetary perspective will probably come shortly after what's happening in the industry at this point. Now, the timing of it and how much will be the $60,000 question. Right, exactly. Um, Anadi, where do you see the where do you see the post quantum uh, the the post quantum question from your point of view as a you know as somebody you know leading an IT organization and you know looking at the digital infrastructure of a company? 
So I think that, you know, all of the, the rationale for PQ and post-PQ, et cetera, or, or post-quantum you know, threats, it's, it's all still real. I think that the reality of business takes over. We are sort of entering this economic cycle where, you know, it's going to be hard to, for people to fund projects which are based on uh, on this type of thesis. But there are certain segments, like we originally said, we talked about it last, last year. I don't think this is for every industry. You know, it is a journey. Certain industries are going to have to get into this early. And I think that leaders, the CIOs, the CSOs, and the board members need to be aware. These are like yeah, typical, highly governed uh, organizations like, you know, financial institutions or healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the friends, uh, you know, those those kind of industries that they're going to have to get to. That. But the commercial stuff is going to take longer. And I, that, that does not take away from the issue of the PQ itself. It's just that, you know, you know, how do you sort of allocate your capital if you get to put it on projects which are going to help you grow? Versus the threat that is a little bit further out. I think the commercial organization is going to fall a little bit further behind here. Uh, and finally, I think, you know, I do, with some of this AI stuff, I think it's going to give people pause of which technologies to put sort of their dollar, right? If they, you know, AI has potential to help you grow, PQ has a potential to help you reduce AI risk and sort of grow incorrectly. I think that's going to be the key decision for a lot of people. If there was money plenty, well, you'll do both them really well, but I think that's going to be the choice. One of the strategies we're starting to see emerge here, and Adib, to your point, is that organizations aren't necessarily just going to fund the journey to quantum safe, but every organization is going through technology refresh, cybersecurity investment cycles, whether it's zero trust, whether it's building cyber resiliency, whether it's whatever it is. And as organizations are investing in that cyber refresh you know, they should be doing it with quantum readiness in mind, right? The, the new tech, cyber technology you're putting in place in your organization should have post-quantum readiness in scope. And, I, and Greg, I think you're right. I think, initially, I think kind of the chat GPT craze of last winter, spring, initially took the eyes off of that discussion like post-quantum crypto because um, everybody had to figure out, well, what is this? What's the threat? What's the opportunity? And as soon as that, it hasn't gelled completely yet, but I think there was some synergies potentially here too that people are going to be looking at. In addition, you know, can we do them both at the same time or do we do need, need to do them each serially in parallel? I think that makes a lot of sense. Sounds like the, the conclusion we, we, um, we were right. It's going to be a slow climb and in a, you know, and that, I think it sounds like the natural order of things is that that PQ will start to become part of the natural order of how uh, organizations evolve their security posture, right? Let's jump to the next one. Um, our second prediction, uh, you know, ownership and control of consumer identity. So, uh, you know, it, it's no secret that a lot of our um, a lot of our digital identity is you know, in some ways, you know, in some ways owned or controlled or managed, you know, by big tech companies, by other big institutions. Um, you know, I guess the question is, is the tide turning more toward privacy and consumer control? So that's what we, that's kind of what we predicted is that things would, would turn toward more privacy and consumer control of identity. 
um, as you know, as as you know, maybe some of the tech giants weren't as responsible as they could have been um, with so um, with digital identity. So, you know, Mark, uh, had, have we seen this happen this year? Have we seen that uh, you know, some of these new strategies and paradigms in the industry to help protect consumer identity? Or, you know, did, or, or, you know, do we have still have a ways to go? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, clearly, privacy is a gift that keeps on giving. Um, <laughs> uh, in that organizations around the globe and people around the globe are upset with a lot of big tech. But it is a dichotomy, you know, taking control of your consumer identity is clearly the direction. Again, I think it's one of those, it is moving in the direction that we thought it would move into. Um, you know, taking control of our online identity. Um, but still a lot of that means friction. And and that's another dichotomy there. Consumers want to control their privacy, but they also generally still don't like friction. And taking control of your identity often means some level of friction. So I think there's still a dichotomy that's going on there. We really haven't seen any new privacy initiatives this last year, you know, kind of the EU, UK, Canada, California, China still are the big um, regulatory bodies when it comes to privacy. You know, I think technologies like generative AI, like we were chatting earlier, has a big part to play in privacy and the future about, you know, taking control of your own privacy Um protecting your own consumer identity. Uh, but there's also still a lot of like, we've all experienced this. Do you want to opt in or opt out of this? If you opt in, everything's going to be a lot easier. And a lot of people are still opting in because quite frankly, it's easier. There's less friction long-term. So from that perspective, we are moving in the in the right direction, but I still, I, I didn't see anything revolutionary this year. Other than that, you know, everything is moving towards consumers wanting control of that. The lawsuits show, you know, illustrate that. But, you know, where we are today, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's it's been a revolutionary move in this last year, but it is moving that direction. Yeah, I, I think, Mark, I, I totally agree. We, we probably didn't get far enough, fast enough for the privacy advocates if they were, you know, marking our, our turn paper here. Um but we saw that sort of steady progress and focus on privacy. The EI does two regulations progressed in the Europe, European Union and the EU digital identity wall. These are all really privacy centric, consumer centric um, regulations and technologies that are meant to put consumers in control of their identities. If we take sort of one step back, I would say last year, identity was as big or bigger a target than it ever was phishing attacks to deep fakes and synthetic identities. We saw some really dramatic threats to identity last year. Um, you know, and if we were looking forward to next year, I suspect it's going to get even more so where the, the threat and the target that identity is um, for bad actors is dramatic. So, so, you know, the inclusion basically didn't move that, you know, didn't move that far with it. Um, we've talked on previous um, episodes of this podcast a lot about how, you know, AI is going to accelerate some of those things you're talking about, as well as maybe help us, you know, help us combat them. 
do we see um do, do we do we see some uh relief for consumers and speaking for consumers we are lazy right so um you know it certainly is a lot easier to opt in as you said um uh, you know do we see some some relief you know is, it will, will technology help us get some relief on making it easier for us to stay in control or to get in control i don't know Deep, if you have thoughts I, I think it will. So here's a, you know, I, I think that here's sort of my summary of sort of looking at the last year, right? I think it all goes back to the broader sort of macroeconomic cycle, you know. Uh, if we were to sort of come back, take a look at saying, is privacy not important or not critical anymore? I think that's wrong. It is because, you know, uh, like both Greg and Mark mentioned, even if you look at some state-level privacy acts within the U.S. You know, each state is coming up with their own privacy acts, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a little bit of a norming forming going on, which is I don't think privacy is not a priority anymore. I do think that the key movement that has happened in this last year and could be a function of the, the economy as well, uh, one is uh, I think what we used to call it, you know, in the industry, so that tasteful damage to organizations uh, and people from losing their identity has reduced a little bit. I think that's not because the actual reputational damage is less, but there is sort of a broader destigmatization of people losing their data. So I do think that it's a little bit less, uh, uh, you know, it, the industry is a little bit more desensitized. That does not take the privacy issue away because the fundamental truth here is, uh, you know, it only takes one really bad incident for this, again, come to the top. So I think. I think it's not going to pay. And the second thing is, gently speaking, you know, the, the, to your point around the technology, I think there is a lot of discussion around you know, or innovation that can be done. And let's see how this machine learning and AI stuff help. Is the privacy enhancing health? Meaning, is this going to be that privacy has to be just embedded in each technology and they have to take care of it? Or is there a horizontal solution that's going to allow to do this? I am more going towards at least in the next three-year cycle, that it's going to be more sort of native security and yeah, native privacy. It's not going to be like any that is a you know separate technology, a separate government that's going to be needed. And that's not because the, that it shouldn't be done. It's just there's not going to be enough money to be spent on building those technologies or enough money to buy those technologies. So I think it's going to be expectation that individual platforms or individual products sort of are privacy enhanced. And then, you know, there is the whole data minimization and uh, limitation of purpose. I think that's always been sort of a charter on CISO's roadmaps. Uh, if, you, if you look at either the security organization all the complaint that the budgets are not there, but consistently, if you're going to identify if you look at it, the budgets have been going up consistently since the idea of patient security came along. Just like every other business, it is going to be maturity. The expectations are very high. Risks are high. So I do think there is a little bit of that. Well, that it, it, it's in my opinion, it's going to be a function of the, the economy. It's going to go back to the foundational stuff. You know, you know, privacy in, is embedded in the product. Uh, I think there's going to be a slowdown and build and buy of dedicated privacy tech. I think there's going to be a lot more focus on sort of data minimization, et cetera, like I mentioned, and more like broader data security, which has always been there. You know, yeah, I, I think you're going to hear a lot more about data address and data encoaching. 
And uh, yeah, and especially with AI, there's not stuff, you know, without data, it's, there is no A or I, right? You know, so I think the data protection <laughs> is come back. It's sort of my take on, on privacy. So not as a critical, but at least in the next three years, I tend to be still important, but expected as part of products, because I think there's a grand sort of desensitization or destigmatization of privacy, frankly, or privacy yeah, loss. It- Interesting. Yeah, that's what that's that's going to be. That's going to be one to watch. Sounds like our conclusion is kind of a, kind of a not a, not a lot of movement in that area, or not as much as we'd hope for in that area. And hopefully, uh, um, I think I think I'm a little afraid of what the catalyst for movement is going to be. <laughs> but um, uh, hey, you know, you guys have seen the stuff, right? Meaning, right? You know, the, the logical and the linear thinking would say, or the logical conclusion to. You know, the colonial pipeline thing, you know, it would be that people would be scared mindless and trying to figure out how we're going to. I think that's happening, but it's, I believe it's back for foundations, right? You, you got to have right technology. And I don't think, so to speak, out of time here, but it's kind of like, you know, the last three years, even within the efficient security, people have lost track of the foundation protect technology you know people like you know you know you can mark and i talk about stuff all the time it's like xdr and more and more protection and response and all this yeah these are like really shiny new toys that all CISO organizations want to play with but you don't you're not going to get the right to play with those things till you have secured the foundational stuff yeah absolutely um one thing i have to ask just uh you know just because we're talking about identity and that sort of thing and it feels like it's rising a lot in a lot of the conversations about it is, uh, you know, how biometrics fits in. And I'm just kind of curious what your thought is in terms of, you know, I'm assuming biometrics doesn't work perfectly by itself, but does it, um, do we see, you know, do we see it as a, um, you know, as something that is, you know, helping privacy or is it something that is, um, uh, you know, maybe a risk to privacy? You know, Greg, yeah. Greg, if you have some Yeah, I think biometrics are, are, a really important technology in a world where phishing is everywhere and deep fakes and synthetic identities are easier than ever to produce technologies that can very deterministically tie a real living person who is verified to be the person they claim to be before issuing them a strong digital identity or executing a secure transaction that is a hugely valuable piece of technology. And and at one of those events, whether it's a secure transaction event or an issuing of a strong digital identity event, more and more companies and organizations are going to focus on that, that technology that allows them to strongly tie a real living person is who they say they are to that important event. Um, So in that world, biometrics plays a huge role and will, will be a very important um, step in combating this huge threat to digital identity. And, you know, th- there's a really interesting, so, you know, sociological, anthropological point of view here, right? As a, a, a as just a citizen, right? You know, I have seen that, you know, so it's hard, right? You know, you, you, most of us go through the clear, at least in the U.S., you know, you go through the clear lines, et cetera, which was largely biometric based. You know, it's, I, I don't know why, but biometrics always by fingerprints or retina, et cetera, is seems more intrusive than just facial recognition. I, I think, you know, at least the way I see it, now that clear guys are in there as well, I think the validation and verification of identity based on 
innovations like how your face is uniquely yours is going to be pretty interesting, which as a technologist and a nerd, you know, that's fantastic. And always used to be like fingerprints and retinas and all that. Wow. What cool technology that you can actually identify a person just from a face and conclusively say that's a I think that's sort of where most of this identity stuff is going to end up going. Yeah, I'm hoping. From a pure and Mark, I'm interested in your viewpoint here. From just sort of a workforce security perspective, I think it's neither here or there. You know, it's like, you know, you need a mechanism. I think it's about time that the settled you know, one modality, one format that we can use for identity, which cannot pass or like these long strings that we use. And the last thing I'll say on the stuff is I I think there is a there is a dynamic of controlled and uncontrolled environments. So if it's a controlled environment, I think the biometric moves more in my opinion to facial recognition type things. Uh, which is workforce, you know, you know, or you know, if you are you know conducting banking transactions, that kind of stuff. Or if you are, you know, you are you're crossing a border, going to an airport, etc. These are controlled environments. I think facial stuff be really, really good, and I think that that works because app fundamentally changed that dynamic. Everybody's very comfortable with that. I don't know, Mark. Do you think? I think biometrics equals the ultimate identity equals zero trust. Um, what you know, the devil's going to be in the details to get there, and you know, and being a, a good security person, I. I, I I'd be reminiscent if I didn't uh, uh, remiss if I didn't bring up. There are some negative aspects. A lot of people like already have their banking app set for facial recognition. They go out on the town, and now you know, it used to be, and you get mugged, they might force you to go take them to the ATM. And now you are reading about people. They're forcing them to take out their phone and see if they have that set up. You know, biometrics already because then they can get right in their bank account. So there's there's always a take and a put. Uh, with any tech, but I do think it's the future. I, I don't worry about that kind of stuff, frankly. You know, I think that's just fear mongering. It's people just get worried about this stuff. It's kind of like, you know, again, can what a completely different conversation. <laughs> it's people, people's fear of technology because the, you know, like autonomous cars, etc. We as humans just cannot get past the fact that how can I not control? So I think that's the same thing applies for, for some of this identity stuff as well. Plenty of there are plenty of ways to, for people to get your identity, but I think if if it's a secure way of making it easy, which is one factor out of six, like you could use eyes or just that password. I think DNA My word my word password bad. Some of this verification validation using your facial and like this, I think it's pretty good. It seems like that's the right way to look at, right? Because I won't put details, but from a technology perspective, it'll be so much more easier because I'd, we know the person has one face. Totally make totally makes sense. Um, uh, so I, I think um, a lot to put into our predictions for the coming year. I think uh, that uh, that uh, you know biometrics, uh, you know, may well start to play a bigger and bigger role in uh, you know making life easier and protecting our privacy um, as well. So I think that's. Uh, Kind of interesting one to watch, and we'll, uh, we'll 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 certainly take a look at that one for the uh, for our for our prediction for our actual prediction segment. Um, last prediction from last year, um, wanted to take we predicted that we would see a lot more focus from from boards on an organization security posture. That this would really be a board level priority, and I think we were starting to see some trends in that direction a year ago. 
um, you know, focused on that potential for operational interruption, financial loss, brand damage. Uh, it's really pushed it, pushed cybersecurity up the corporate ladder. Uh, we'll, 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 let's kick that one off with you, Andy Deep. Have we, have we seen that across the board? Have we seen that in general? Absolutely. I, I think, I think, you know, the, the governing bodies are more and more looking at risk, uh, as a critical factor. I think there is a lot of learnings and boards as well right now to sort of figure out what some of the basic stuff be and, you know, what's on the foundational as well as some of the advanced, you know, things. So there's certainly a lot of awareness and a lot for asks, uh, from boards to this and, uh, you know, to, to address the risk or, or, or some of these things that I, I think the awareness is very high from everywhere, everyone else. So I think that's going to continue, uh, both from the perspective of how we, how the risk posture is helping obviously control the risk, but also our risk posture is used as a growth mechanism, not just as a threat monitoring. And if you don't do this, your business is going to fail. I think that the macro environment is going to help it to be a growth engine, but not for every industry. Some industries are going to certainly use that, the others won't. But the boards are a lot more aware and they're going to continue pushing. And how, how do you see, you know, maybe this is a question for Mark, you know, how do you see the impact of that in the security organizations today or IT organizations more broadly? I think it's maturity and also, yeah, historically, as kind of Adadeep had talked earlier, you know, a, a CISO organization was put there to protect the your environment, protect your information. Um, they often talked in technical risk terms if they talked in anything. Um, I think it's a translation from viewing them as purely, you know, still as kind of a technical wonders, you know, I don't have to worry about it. They'll protect me. I think, as Anandeep said, this was the strongest one this year. And most strongly in July, again, this is U.S. centric, but the SEC signed into law a requirement for public companies to disclose material incidents. Again, that's that's been brewing for a while, but it also required them to disclose their cybersecurity risk management strategy and governance, which they have never done before. So right now, if you're a public company and you've ignored this, which a lot of companies, let's be honest, have either pushed it to the back office or not thought about it, now it has to be forefront. Um, and it's moving it from a discussion from a technical risk to, yeah, that's great that there's this cross-site scripting vulnerability or but what's the real business impact? What are we talking about? You know, moving it into business terms or board terms, as Anadeep had said. I think that's going to be, you know, uh, I don't want to be sensational, but there's going to be CISOs who are business savvy and will succeed and CISOs who just want to be able to explain technology. So I, I think successful organizations have to start treating and it's a, there's a talent issue here. The talent has to sort of figure out that a business leader, they are not just a technology leader. And uh, that's what's going to, in my mind, determine, you know, success or failure for CISOs. One observation I've got, it sort of connects to both Anadeep's and Mark's point about how the risk is changing from technical risk towards business risk. I, I think the shift I'm observing is CISOs and, and boards thinking less about preventing breach, right? I need these 10 technologies to tick the box, prevent breach, to assume breach. And how do I limit impact? How do I build resiliency into my organization? How do I limit business risk in that sort of with that philosophy of assume breach versus prevent breach? This, this is one, this is one, it seems like uh, it, 
it seems like we kind of hit on the nose a, a bit a bit more that that um, uh, you know the boards are a bit more on top of this and that um, you know IT is being is really pushing um, uh, in the right direction in this area. So, it's, but one will one will certainly keep uh, keep an eye on and see how it evolves over time. Um, one thing I'll ask real quick before we finish is um, and just you know headlines only. Um, if you were to jump back a year in time. Um, what was, what's the prediction you would have wanted to make for 2023? What happened in 2023 that, uh, you, you'd wish you'd, uh, you'd wish you'd caught early. Anybody want to take that one on first? Generative AI. Well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take the easy one. Like, is it Generative AI. What else? <laughs> I, I think I would have, uh, like to sort of see the consolidation of technology in my predictions that we all had it in our minds. We just really didn't say it because all of us were looking at where the economy is going and how technology organizations work. So I, I think uh, I should have, uh, from my point of view, highlighted that a lot more. A consolidation of technology in terms of uh, companies or in terms of yes. vendor choices? Yes. It's with the, with the economy, the way it's going to be, People are going to buy platforms versus individual products, you know, which is, uh, you know, gives you scale, gives you scale both of your technology as well as scale of your dollar. So I think that, you know, I should have said that. How about you, Greg? Yeah, I, I got to jump on with Mark, right? At ChatGPT, I think three, the version three was released a, a week before we did our podcast. I don't think I would have predicted how all consuming the hype around AI was, would have been last year. Like, I think we recognized it as, is as a, unique and transformational technology, but the obsession, the singular focus in the discussions around technology over the last year is AI, AI, everything, right? AI isn't the answer to everything. Um, it's undoubtedly a transformational technology, but it, it isn't the answer to everything. And we, we sort of got a bit obsessed last year about it, and, I, and we didn't predict that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm going to leave it there. Um, our next podcast, will do a little more forecasting into the future once again. Um, but till then, um, I hope you'll check out uh, www.entros.com slash cybersecurity-institute. That is the Cybersecurity Institute um, website homepage with lots of discussions, insights, blogs, videos, etc. that um, will give you a little more insight into how we're thinking and in what's going on in this uh, world of cybersecurity and identity. Um, so please take a look at that. If you have questions for us, if you have your own predictions you want to share with us, um, send us by email at cybersecurityinstitute at entrust.com. Uh, I want to thank Stephen Damone for producing this and uh, all of our episodes. And thank you for joining us today on the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute podcast. Mm-hmm.